0: Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Art of Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theater.
1: I thought of little puppets as big puppets. What a possibility. I very much thought of cathedrals, for example, and this overwhelming life that you have when you step into a cathedral. There's all these saints and sculpted creatures that are there, and what a communal space that is, by the fact that sculpture is so important in there. Because they are so much like us, three-dimensional, and their faces remind us of our grandmothers. And to lift those off and to move them, I think that was one of my first thoughts when I thought of making big puppets and moving them around. Animate the stones in the
0: cathedral. That's sculptor Peter Schumann, the director of the Bread and Puppet Theater. The cathedral he imagined now exists in an old barn just off Route 122 in the little village of East Glover in northeastern Vermont. It's called the Bread and Puppet Museum, and it's a place as teeming with life as any old cathedral. Arranged along its corridors are angels and demons, animals and gods... Saints, garbage men, and grandmothers, each with its own compelling presence, a cosmos in papier-mâché. It's hard to think of a comparable achievement in the annals of modern art, and yet there it sits, remote from the centers of fashion and influence, made of moldering paper in a tinderbox barn, a work at once of grandeur and humility. The displays in the Bread and Puppet Museum represent 40 years of puppet making. Peter Schumann founded his theater in 1963 in New York, and from the beginning he's drawn on the great forms of Western religious art, creating nativity plays, passion plays, masses, cantatas, and oratorios. But he hasn't used these traditional forms in a traditional way. His shows have engaged his own society and denounced the contemporary evils of war, injustice, and political oppression. Tonight, in the concluding episode of a four-hour series on the Bread and Puppet Theater, David Cayley examines the way in which Peter Schumann has taken on Christianity and religion generally in his work. Pictures of some of his puppets are available on our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. Puppet Uprising, Part 4, by David Cayley.
2: In the mid-1980s, the Bread and Puppet Theater was invited to Nicaragua by a popular theater company there called Makate. The small Central American country was then embroiled in a civil war in which the American-backed Contras were attacking the revolutionary regime of the Sandinistas. Michael Romanishan was one of the four puppeteers who accompanied Peter Schumann.
3: We went and lived in a very small village called San Jose de Masatepe, and we worked with 40 Nicaraguans, mostly men, who were part of this group, and they came from all over the country. Most of them were subsistence farmers who had been working with Makate for a number of years and were organized into little theater and music groups. And we lived in this little town. The five of us lived in a little one-room house with no electricity and, and an outdoor kitchen. And we had clay and Peter sculpted the set of big puppets in the middle of town on posts right in the schoolyard. And with this group of people, we we made like a new kind of Easter show, a passion play. So we performed this play in the town, and the play took place all over town, with each station of the Easter play, each station of the cross, in a different part of town, with a parade in between. And it was also during the during the contra war, so it became sort of a a contemporary passion play about someone that had been killed in the in the war. And the funny thing was that they were doing a traditional Easter play in that town and they the church was quite conservative and not so happy with our presence there and they did their own little Easter play and but for ours the whole town came out I mean it was probably 6 or 700 people living in that town and it was a beautiful play it was with a lot of music and parades and these puppets that Peter made there
2: as Michael Romanishin says the Jesus puppet in this bread-and-puppet passion play represented a villager who had been killed by the Contras. The events leading to his crucifixion were given a local political color, and each scene set in a different part of town.
3: They had set up that week a fenced-in area to have, like, bullfights, but not where they'd kill the bull, but just sort of seeing how courageous the local men were and stuff. So the, the parade went to the center of town And there was this bobbed wire area, fenced-in area, and we did the trial there. And then there was a big wooden cross that got made. So he gets the cross, and then there was another parade to the uh, crucifixion area. And this big wooden cross, really quite large, was put into the ground and had a pulley on it. And the crucifixion was done by tying the puppet in a shape of, like, Jesus being crucified with lines going up to the cross and then at the moment of the crucifixion the puppet would fly off the operator and go up onto the cross so it would be very high it was very high above the performing area and it ended up with the puppet being on the cross it was quite a strong image
2: the play concluded with a resurrection scene and was then followed by a community dance the production was characteristic both in its incorporation of local people, local stories, and locally available materials, and in its adaptation of traditional religious narrative. Bread and Puppet has created scores of such passion plays over the years, with The Crucified ranging from modern martyrs like Archbishop Romero of El Salvador to a herd of caribou drowned by the James Bay Dam. Peter Schumann's guiding principle has been to use the stories people know, and he regards the Bible as one of the great master sources of such stories. His attitude was formed, he says, in his childhood.
1: My father read the Bible to us, I would say, not as a Christian. I don't believe he was, but like a grand old human document of sorts, more than literature, not just literature, but as something like a mystery from ancient times that needed to be, exposed to us kids so things that were totally above our heads but he would do that anyway even when we were very young he would read the iliad to us or various things so he didn't mind that we didn't understand something but for me it was very important and when i read myself in the bible i never read the bible from beginning to end but always like something you could open up anywhere wouldn't matter where and just read and just get engrossed in this ancient language, in this grand simplification of reality. And always human reality beaten or punished or elevated or challenged by this god, by this voice from above.
2: Very powerful, beautiful. Peter Schumann, as these comments suggest, takes religion seriously. The agonized dialogue of the ancient Hebrews with the voice from above is something more for him than mere literature or ethnography. But he by no means considers himself a Christian. In fact, he told me during a long interview in New York, he stands very much opposed to organized Christianity. I'm totally divorced from that idea particularly
1: the incredible impression of hypocrisy, of the totally wrong going of the world that bases its, even its laws and its institutions on this belief and then acts the exact opposite and goes out there and punishes the enemy who was supposed to be kissed and embraced and taken close to you, and acts out the exact opposite of its own belief in every respect of the word, and yet confesses to it. It's so disgusting to me. Cardinal Spellman, when we were here in New York, blessed the B-52s before they flew their missions in Vietnam. So, for me, that act itself meant the end of Christianity as any meaningful institution.
2: Peter Schumann's opposition to institutional Christianity has not made him turn away from Christian themes and images. On the contrary, he says, he has tried to liberate the Christian story from the prison house of dogma and clerical domination and return it to the people.
1: We want to steal from this corrupt religion as much as we can. We want to reappropriate their terminology. We want to take their language and give it to people in a fresh and untainted way. We want to not allow them to use the word resurrection as if they were the owners of that word. We want to use these terms and cast new meaning into them and force them into political context, into human context, into social context and make them be alive again and not allow him to be. But naturally, we are religious. Everybody, I mean, any atheist, everybody could claim religiosity fairly, simply. Just our language is religious. Our spirituality is religious. There is no use of language without spirituality. There is no thinking without spirituality. There is no dreaming without spirituality. So we, in, in that sense, you cannot avoid religion if that's what you want to call religion. But then religion also has assumed the name of simply of an organized entity of a certain kind. Some of them we call religions, others we just call, we have sort of blasphemous other words for them, right? So we we reserve that as if it was the privilege of a few giant clubs. And whoever isn't in the club, there's something wrong with us.
2: Peter Schumann, one might say, has tried to rescue religion from religion, to extract the hope, the mystery, and the praise embodied in the Bible from the shell of exclusive and authoritarian belief. He gives, as an example, resurrection, an idea which has played a prominent part in many Bread and Puppet productions. For many years, Bread and Puppet hosted a free outdoor puppet circus and puppet pageant that was called Our Domestic Resurrection Circus. By the time it was finally overwhelmed by its own popularity in 1998, it was attracting upwards of 30,000 people to the Schumann farm in northeastern Vermont. The pageant had a different theme each year and an ever-changing array of extraordinary puppets, but always the same underlying structure as the Christian Bible, creation, fall, and resurrection. I asked Peter Schumann about this pattern during a tour of the Bread and Puppet Museum. What does the resurrection express for you?
1: Well, first of all, circular time, springtime, the reality of things in the real world, not in our real world, <laughs> and and foremost that, but also simply what happens inside people, because drama, as a storytelling device needs to have some goal. It can't just stop with somebody being murdered or with somebody being downed or some evil force being defeated. It needs to resurrect, it needs to pick up things from where they are downed and flattened and dead and bring them to life again. For me, the cycle of what you want to do isn't finished unless that also happens. So it's not like an arbitrary pick of a story where you can end any which way. In a big pageant like this, you feel you are responsible to make hope and regrowth and rebirth the final event after everything else. The event has to be finished, and the finishing of the event requires this last biggest
2: gesture, His pageants, Peter Schumann says, had to end with resurrection. It was an obligation. First, because nature is continuously reborn, but also because resurrection expresses the deep structure of human hope and longing, regardless of whether we look for supernatural rescue or survival after death. And this hope has to be enacted and given form again and again. Taylor Storr is a teacher, a writer, and an admirer of the Bread and Puppet Theater. He was a regular at Bread and Puppet's annual Domestic Resurrection Circus, and he says that for him, the resurrection that was represented in Peter Schumann's pageants points to the existing world.
4: The better world that we all hope for, and I mean, that gives meaning to your life to struggle for, and you have to believe in in order to struggle for in other words you have to have faith and hope is actually available at every moment it's not something that's gonna take place later it is fully manifested and every time that the spirit really moves people that's the resurrection and it never is final rather than it's going to be full later. What I would say is, well, it's full now, but it's not final. It has to be done over and over again. Human beings will always have to do it. But it's as good as you get. It's not just a foretaste. It's the real thing. And it will be again the next time.
2: Peter Schumann's project of putting religion back in the hands of the people has deep roots in Western civilization. Christianity in the Middle Ages and after was a living cultural form and not just a system of belief. It was a vehicle for people's hopes, fears, joys, and grievances as much as it was an expression of a fixed dogma. One example of this religious vitality was the mystery or miracle plays that dramatized episodes from scripture and were originally performed by the laity in churches. It was the expulsion of these plays from churches, Peter Schumann says, that gave rise to the popular tradition to which his work belongs. To me, it seems
1: that what we inherited as modern puppetry, or whence it comes from, is the moment where the mystery cycles in the churches were thrown out of the church because they became too devilish, too real, too fresh, too mean, and too ridiculous. And the church threw them out and left the pious part of the mystery play inside the sanctuary. And from then on, the market puppetry started and and left all the piousness inside the sanctuary and took the other elements, the politicness of it, and the direct address to the public and to say all the forbidden things. And there was always an important element in Papaji since it's outside the official culture. It's not royal, it's not aristocratic, it's not bourgeois, it's always on the other side. It doesn't have licenses. It's very hard for it to get a license to do what it does.
2: The throwing of plays out of the churches, what kind of plays were these? Well,
1: I think that when you read them, these gigantic plays that were done in churches of the reenactment of Easter mostly, more or less, and the more and more elaborateness of that, the more and more puppetry and masks and Haven't you heard of Leonardo building gigantic mechanical devices into churches for spectacles? Appearance acts, disappearance acts, flying, deus ex machina, explosions, hell scenes, fire, the illusion of fire, all sorts of developments as part of the presentation of the mystery cycles and the church closing the door to it all and reforming it and making it neat and keeping it correct politically correct religiosity inside the church and the
2: incorrect stuff the fresh stuff outside church christianity after the reformation became in peter schumann's eyes a pious shell The exuberant popular energies it was able to contain during the middle ages were driven out into the street. Puppetry became one of the new expressions of what Schumann calls the fresh stuff. John Bell is a puppeteer who worked with Peter Schumann for many years and now is a professor of theater at Emerson College in Boston. He says that the expelling of theater from churches during the Reformation is just one expression of a persistent anxiety within official christianity
5: we went to a a museum in germany and i forget where that was all these artifacts religious artifacts that were sort of kicked out of mainstream i guess lutheran or catholic services in the the 19th 18th century you know post-enlightenment and it was all like ritual stuff and intense the stuff you find still in, say, Catholic churches in Latin America, statues of Jesus with the blood and the bones right laid out in a glass coffin and fetish objects and this intense material imagery, that's embarrassing. In medieval times, there's a lot of anxiety about performance with masks and puppets because the churches are often built on old Pagan sites and people persist in dancing and doing mask performance, and the Pope sort of wants to stamp that out. So there are these repeated references to trying to suppress the use of masks in churches and dancing. Spain, interestingly enough, has a special exemption from the Pope, which allows boys to dance in the church. So Spain manages to persist in its use of theatricality in the church. Otherwise, in in Europe, that stuff is repressed. And I think it has to do with the fact that once people start dressing up and doing puppets, they're tapping into a pre-Christian, pagan vibe. And at certain moments in the church's history, this was threatening, I think. Although, an interesting thing is that early in the church, you know, the origin of the word marionette is Mary. The first marionettes were images of the Virgin Mary. And, and creche plays, you know, the essential performance of the nativity is, in a way, a puppet show. You know Even in Italy, you see these incredible creches with mo- arctic moving figures and stuff, you know. So that's central. And Jesus on the cross, in, the, in medieval times, there were these Jesuses and the eyes moved and the head turned, you know. Peter Schumann does a passion play with a Jesus puppet. Well, that's really hooking up to basic medieval Christian religious stuff. So even though the church was made anxious or nervous by a lot of this theatricality, they also originally used a lot of it.
2: Performances involving puppets or masks made the Christian church uneasy, John Bell says, and they were eventually suppressed. But in every other culture, and in surviving Western folk cultures, such performances remained the dominant form of theater, as Western scholars discovered when they began to study the matter.
5: In the 19th century, with the beginnings of folklore or anthropology, understanding of non-Western cultures again and again Westerners are confronted with the situation of puppets so that like the word folklore is invented in the mid-19th century in England, and you have these folks going around and digging up antiquities that used to be called antiquities. And, And they look and they, oh, there are these giant puppets all around England. Or what are these folk traditions of European village life and seasonal rituals? Well, they involve... Uh, maypoles and hobby horses and masks performance and green men and carnival and on and on. Then when they when Europeans start to invent anthropology and they go to Africa or they go to Asia then what do they find? They find masks and ritual, they find puppets all over the place. Then you get someone like Nietzsche writing The Birth of Tragedy and he's writing about Greek tragedy and trying to rediscover that, and part of what he's writing about is a ritual performance with masks. Modern puppet theater, according
2: to John Bell, is the inheritor of this tradition. At the Bread and Puppet Domestic Resurrection Circus, puppets and masked performers played to an outdoor audience seated in a natural amphitheater, a situation resembling the ancient theater of Dionysus, which Nietzsche studied, Puppet theater may seem marginal to contemporary theater goers, Bell says, but it is actually the modern actors theater that's the exception.
5: Every culture has mask theater, puppet theater. Not every culture has a performance tradition where there's a building and inside the building, you know, you paint it all black or you have a proscenium arch and you have lights and people come in and pay uh, money and they sit down and you perform a a realistic drama where the conceit is that we're watching an exact duplicate of a room in somebody's house where a drama takes place that form of theater is really a narrow tradition if we talk about someone out on the street with a puppet and a mask and dancing and talking about religion and politics You find that in Africa, you find that in Asia, you find that in European pop folk traditions, you find that in Native American traditions, you find that everywhere. So our minor little form of puppet theater, which is so, you know, not even developed enough to be properly recognized in today's Boston Globe, that's really the world theater tradition.
0: On Ideas tonight you're listening to Puppet Uprising, a four-hour portrait by David Cayley of Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theatre. Photographs are available on our website cbc.ca slash ideas. Puppets and masks,
2: John Bell says, possess an ancient and universal connection with ritual and religion. Religion including Christianity, was performed as dance, drama, and song. And these performances were wild, living expressions, like the mystery cycles Peter Schumann has described. To reinvent this fresh quality and to reclaim religion for the contemporary imagination have been Schumann's aims. And it is in this sense that he can be said to have created a modern religious theater. His achievement is visible first of all in his puppets. There seems to be no other and no better word than holy to describe the aura of many of the faces Schumann has sculpted. He described for me what he thinks his sculpture does. It takes that face and
1: by stilling it, it makes something in that face very, very big. If it would only be the actor playing that person, It would only be a duplication of the same thing. But in the case of the sculpture doing that, it's not a duplication of the same thing. It's a much larger thing. It makes the face holy. It's just one element in it. It's stillness. It's the holy self of that self. Why holy? Because of that possibility in that self to be whole and to be holy. And in sculpture it is that doesn't do any harm or wrong or evil, or not even the possibility of it.
2: The faces Peter Schumann speaks of can be seen in the Bread and Puppet Museum, where his puppets are collected and displayed. It's in an old barn on his Vermont farm. We toured the museum together, and he told me he had conceived it as a papier-mâché cathedral, which for him means a space where things can be truly what they are. They are a place where
1: human beings can feel truly at home, not like they are at home, but where they're at home in the real community of everybody else. And it's a place of non-purpose. It's not a place like home where you have to sleep, to eat, to prepare the meal, to fight poverty, to do nasty things, etc. But it's a place where that's absent. So you are only in the community of people who are either ready to die or have just been born and this is similar it's the whole representation of animals and people and spirits that belong together they're all here and if they're not all here we will add them next year they will be they They are obliged to be here but this is a cathedral with something different
2: in the sense that it's so highly perishable.
1: Yeah, that's the the reality of things. The, the other cathedrals try to pretend some form of human eternity which isn't quite true, which all the wars of modern times are proving again and again and again and again. And we don't pretend that. We are a little bit on the other side of that pretense that doesn't exist for us. We say... It'll go. It should go. It needs to go. It's fine that it goes. We're going to say bye-bye or not. It's very ephemeral.
2: Peter Schumann sees the impermanence of his cardboard creatures as part of the marginality of puppetry, which he embraces. Guaranteed made from garbage, he proudly tells his audience as he introduces an array of papier-mâché gods and this low status he says protects the puppets from the inhibiting aura of serious art you also feel
1: easy about their death or about their going away or about their molding in in the barn or their melting in the rain or whatever it's not important it's part of their ridiculousness it's
2: so good. you avoid even though you must be pleased with some of your how some of them have come out that's also a detachment you practice to, to let them go? Oh,
1: I, I don't mind recognize. at all that they go. I never thought or think of them as something very permanent or even long-lasting. I'm amazed at the ones in the barn, but I'm also amazed that the barn hasn't burned down. It's such a firebox, a tinderbox.
2: All that paper.
1: Yeah. So, no, it's a, so
2: their transience is part of their beauty to you.
1: Absolutely.
2: That you're not going to leave a mark when you go.
1: Right, hopefully not. Enough is enough. The burdens of history are already (laughs) over-plentiful. I have no desire to
2: contribute to those. Peter Schumann's willingness to let his creations decompose reflects the attitude with which he composes them in the first place. The things he makes are things that he says want to be. They come through him, but he doesn't see himself as planning, controlling or owning the process. We think of the things of this world as objects, he once wrote, because we deceive ourselves that we are subjects. For him, things are alive, and a discarded wrapping paper can rise in the wind as an angel. This sense of a world rustling and stirring with a life larger than our own informs his work and his attitude to materials. He takes what is available at the moment makes what needs to be at the moment and then lets it go. And it is this deep respect for the living world, says Amy Trumpeter, a former member of the theater, that is what is finally religious about Peter Schumann's approach.
6: I think it's a like a pact with life of using the small amount of resource to make the big amount of productivity and that discipline to get up in the morning and grind the grain and bake the bread and be true to that work it's practical and making something out of really modest means not a desire to have more budget more stuff more technical not at all it's a spiritual pact with this stuff which isn't harmful to the earth and which won't last and the paper mache is impermanent and that truth is your contract and the truth starts with knowing what you're working with, how much energy you're using, how much other people's energy you're using, how much materials of the earth you're using, what you're giving for what you're consuming. That's the spiritualness of it, and the, the trust that what will come out needs to be said and will come out in a way that can be heard and that would open ears and help eyes to see again because it's so cluttered, our world with what we don't need and uses up so much in a harmful way. That is the spiritualness of it for me.
2: Peter Schumann treats his art as temporary, as something arising and subsiding within larger cycles of nature and time. And in this respect, I think, he shows a revolutionary difference from our existing museum culture with its view of art history as an endlessly projected series of monuments. The same attitude is expressed in Schumann's insistence that the purpose of his theater is to devise performances that fit the necessity of the moment. When he started a dance company as a young man in Germany in the 50s, he wanted to demonstrate what he called moving in the right way. When he began his theater, its mandate was to say the right thing for whatever occasion a given play was created for. The performance of such fitting gestures is also one of the functions of religion. But it is a function at which Schumann thinks that churches often fail because they are too pious or too officious or too authoritarian. He found an example of how he thinks things should be done when he gave a workshop at a Taoist temple in Taiwan a few years ago. It
1: was on a hill on the bottom of a holy mountain where people went for pilgrimages in a very beautiful central place in Taiwan. Giant stairs leading up to this wonderfully built temple surrounded by dragons and Religious stories carved in wood and painted wonderfully. In the central temple part of it, hundreds of gods and an earth goddess in the middle, all gods with caps, which we imitate, <laughs> nightcaps that get pulled over their eyes so that they can sleep and then in the day get taken off so that they can be awake. We had to attend a service in the temple because we were there at a bad season where there was violent storms and rain and wind and so on. So the priestess suggested that we must pray for good weather for these performances. And we did. And we went in there and knelt down and she lit things and she hit the cymbals and the attendants of her uncovered guards and whatever they did, And then we had good weather. (laughs) It was quite fantastic (laughs) in the bad weather season. And I was there at times when they had more public services for other reasons or occasions. And similar to the Russian Orthodox service, it had such an atmosphere of they just did the right thing in there. They brought their babies, they smoked their cigarettes, they gossiped, they could do anything they wanted like they do as pedestrians in their street or at home. And yet they were participating heart and soul and mind with what the priestess and her companions did there for them. And as in the Russian Orthodox Church, where the bringing of the light into the church, the church being closed, the knocking at the door, the opening of the door, the bringing of the light from outside to the inside, and from that source of light, lighting all things. All of this is already holy, never mind how the people behave. In an Episcopalian church, the priests have to dress very neatly and and behave very nicely in order to believe anything. In an old Orthodox church or in this Taoist thing, people can spit on the floor, it doesn't matter. It won't disturb their connection to the creation of light or to the opening of the space by properly opening the door at the right side at the right time after knocking sufficiently and the priest saying, yes, he's risen, and opening the door for them. So it seems to me it's not the particulars of these religions. It's the the need in us that makes it, which is not outside of our commonness, of our ordinariness. And all of this goes into that holy place, and the light gets
2: produced in front of it. So can that be done in the theater as, as easily as in a church? No,
1: no, no, it cannot. And I'm not claiming creating rituals. I think rituals just aren't made. They happen upon us. They are created by our needs, us meaning not the producers, but the, the general assembly of people who happen to be together. In modern theater, one talks a lot about ritualistic and ritual and so on, I find that quite fake. I find that very similar to what I feel in the
2: Episcopalian church as fake. Theater cannot create rituals, Peter Schumann says, but it can reach for the right gesture within its own performance. The show I saw in New York, during the time we were recording the conversations you're hearing tonight, concerned the protests that occurred during the meetings of the leaders of the G8 countries in the Italian city of Genoa in the spring of 2001. During those meetings, protesters were beaten and one was killed by police. The play didn't try to represent these events, but instead transformed them into surprising sounds and images. The shooting of the protester was enacted by Schumann clicking two small stones together, making the report of the gun real by reducing it to the tiniest of sounds. The oratorio, as Schumann called this piece, ended with the company at a table, solemnly drinking to the accompaniment of an old Georgian folk song.
1: That oratorio at that moment, to my mind, has the need for that ancient Georgian festive song, which is for an occasion of sitting and drinking. This ancient world has to be present somewhere in this, because we only have the modern world. So for me, to all of a sudden have the ancient song there, and to act properly and respectfully vis-a-vis that song, to sit down and take cabbage leaves and pour water in them and drink out of them, is a simple thing. It's only a little thought. It's not trying to establish something which then we propose to the audience, please go home and do that. We are only saying in our oratorio, we need to sit down at that point and sing an ancient, ancient, ancient song of drinking and of eating. Ritual would mean a proposal for everybody to join in or to come next week again or next day again and so on. We are not doing that. But on the other hand, It creates and shows a formalism that people can understand as useful in their lives, to understand doings of things as in need of a formalism that makes them communal.
2: Peter Schumann's Genoa Oratorio shows its audience a possibility, a potentially useful formalism, he says. This is also how he views the larger purpose of his theater, It doesn't prescribe rituals, but it does provide a kind of prototype or vehicle for unformed collective aspirations. It's an
1: attempt to give form to a culture that doesn't have a form, a culture that isn't, where the upsetness against the culture doesn't have a form. The culture has a form, but that form is a corrupt, useless bulk of stuff, whereas the human drive and strength and energy excluded from those culturally existing forms want to be, and they need form also. And I think what we do is an attempt to find that form, to find funerals, to find ways of coming into this world, to find how to be in the world as a protester, how to insurrect against the government, how to insurrect against the culture, how to topple the government, how to topple the culture, how to establish possible real forms of government and of people living together and being together. So that yearning in people
2: needs form One of the examples Peter Schumann gives of this reaching for proper cultural forms is what he calls finding funerals. And at the Bread and Puppet Farm, in the pine woods that stretch above the field where circuses and pageants are performed, one finds a collection of small wooden houses built in memory of puppeteers and friends of the theater who have died. Each of these shrines is custom built and decorated with reminders of that person Spirit houses, they seemed to me when I first saw them, more personal and more satisfying than tombstones. Each house has been dedicated by a gathering of friends. The
1: funerals that I have attended proved to me a society that doesn't have real commemorative services. And I always understood our theater to be a, a funeral institution. To be an institution that can provide proper services for people who are sad or for people who are about to die or for people who have died and for the rest of us therefore need to be commemorated so uh, to provide that service in our hurt state of human community is a function of our theater
2: now how Would you reconcile what you just said with the earlier statement that you're not providing rituals?
1: The commemoration is freewheeling. It doesn't force people to do it a certain way. It usually opens up for them to have to invent that way at the moment where we do it. In the case of a theater piece, that's limited. But when we do a real one for Mabel Dennison or for the other people who died last year in our pine forest, where we have the commemoration places for them, then it's all the elements we can pull together. It's the singing and the parading and the speaking that people wish to do and the beauty of the space and the seating people into the pine forest with their screaming children. It's not a ritual. It's a very open form where people contribute immediately into it or can change it immediately as
2: they partake. Peter Schumann is speaking here about private gatherings of the Bread and Puppet Company and its large extended family of friends and former puppeteers. But he also says that it is part of the public work of the theater to invent more satisfying ceremonies and services than those that presently exist. And this, for him, demands a rebirth of popular religious vitality and the courage to invent new gods.
1: These are the gods that are presiding over the insurrection mass. They are small, paper mache, guaranteed made from garbage, and they are the exact opposite of our monotheistic super gods of our monocultural superculture. And I will now introduce to you each of these gods.
2: The occasion. Is a performance of what Peter Schumann calls an insurrection mass at New York's Theater for the New City. A number of small, Buddha like statues line the front of the performing area. Like the gods Schumann admired at the Taoist temple in Taiwan, each wears a cap. There's a god of the light bulbs which illuminate the room, a god of woodchucks and foxes endangered by the interstate highway system, and a general thank you god.
1: And this is the special god of today, the god of papier-mâché, and its opposite, civilization. When we say papier-mâché gods, you know, it's a ridiculous thing, sure. But it's also very real to say that to people. Because we know that in their hearts they are neither Jews nor Christians. They are papier-mâché god-believers, and they just don't dare to say it. But, since we say it to them, be confess it, you believe in paper mache gods. they might join us.
2: <laughs> what does that mean to believe in paper mache gods
1: well in in the free wheeling ancient concept of many, many gods for any occasion and for everything in your mind, not this horrendous idea of this super unity of a singular figure or singular thing there but instead this wonderful greek giganticness of gods for everything gods for every occasion and gods for all cells in your brain gods after all productions our productions we make them it's our job And that can be said negatively as well as positively. Once we realize that we made them, we can abandon them and make other ones. And yet, naturally, we know what we really mean is a reality. But by naming the reality, we we are the producers. We made this wonderful Jesus guy there. with, with the bearded fellow in the middle and pulling up the Mary and the Jesus to the two thrones on the side. It's very valuable for societies to have picturesque beauties up there, elegance, wonderfulness.
2: Whether it's changing the gods or toppling the government, as he suggested earlier, Peter Schumann speaks with a prophetic assurance that has resounded through his work for 40 years. Its foundation, it seems to me, is his profound sense that it's now or never for our fast-decaying civilization. His message is, resist, wake up,
1: dare. We are living in a world which we don't have to submit to, but we can stand up against it. We can do that. We don't have to only dream about it. There's so much in people that wants to be I mean, what's tourism? What does the tourist go? The tourist goes out away from his own life to see that ancient life that his industry destroys. But if the tourist would realize that he can't be a tourist, that instead
2: he must live that life. That the tourist must live the ancient life he now only consumes is one of the great convictions underlying Peter Schumann's work. And not just the tourist, who stands here, I think, as a figure for an entire civilization, a civilization which appears to Schumann to be pursuing a mere shadow of its lost life. But that ancient life, he thinks, is still there, growing wild and capable of resurrection. His art demonstrates the possibility by its originality, by its abundance, and by its devotion to communal rather than commercial demands. Today, at age 68, Peter Schumann remains extraordinarily vital. He's still touring, still making puppets, still baking bread for all his shows, and still leading parades on his 12-foot stilts. Look for him. The best may be yet to come.
1: I want to do bigger and very different types of shows. I just don't know yet how and when. So when when we invented the mass a couple of years back, I thought, oh, now we got some form that we, you know, as if that was our final thing there. But in actuality, I'm looking for and I can't describe it, but it's something very different.
4: So there's more to come. Yeah, definitely. God willing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Inshallah. All right.
4: <laughs> Thank you, Peter.
1: Oh, yeah, welcome. That
2: was a that was a pleasure for me.
1: Good. I'm glad to hear that because then it makes sense.
0: On ideas, you've listened to the fourth and final episode of Puppet Uprising. Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theatre. Pictures and writings by Peter Schumann are available on our website at cbc.ca/slash ideas. Tonight's program was written, presented, and produced by David Cayley with the assistance of Susan Mahoney and Dave Field. Our associate producer and webmaster is Liz Naj. Thanks to Euda Mason, to Taylor Storr, who believed puppets could appear on radio, to Peter and Elke Schumann and to the many puppeteers who offered hospitality and encouragement. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $22 or a set of audio cassettes or CDs for $32. Write to us at Ideas Transcripts Box 500 Station A Toronto M5W 1E6 or call four-one-six. 205 and order by credit card. Please allow four to six weeks for delivery. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up on CBC Radio 1, the hourly news, followed by the Arts Today and Between the Covers.